Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm again joined by my friends Richard LaDuke and Jonathan Oliver. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Uh, so I got a question for you about the various accounts of the first vision. So we, there's obviously multiple different accounts, and there's different target audiences for each one. Well, which one of them was then published first and became the most widely uh, used at the time, and why? So there's a there's a couple of, of different ways to 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 answer that, that question. I mean. Again, go back to if you if you didn't listen to our first part, part one of this podcast, you you probably should listen to it because we cover some of the some of these things. But but second of all, it's important to understand that again, they are not looking towards the first vision as as being the reason why people believe the same way we are today. They're looking at many other miraculous events as being of equal importance as well as as the Book of Mormon. So there's similarities. But that is the great question. At what point is this first published to the to the world by Joseph? And actually, that's actually going to come in something that's actually very familiar to Latter-day Saints, um, but not for the same reasons. That's the Wentworth letter that Joseph Smith writes to John Wentworth. Now, Wentworth had, he had uh, asked Joseph for a friend, um, can you provide for me the uh, just a brief history of the Mormonites, essentially, um, for, for this history book that his friend is writing? Now, what that means is that Joseph knew in, in responding to this that the audience was absolutely not Latter-day Saint. The point is, it's a history book. I mean, John Wentworth isn't a Latter-day Saint. You know, he, the, the, this, the, the point of this is... What should people who aren't members of the church know about what Mormons believe? So that, that's, that's the context of the question in the first place. So there's a couple of things that are going on there. First, as Joseph responds, he knows he doesn't have all day, right? I mean, you've got a limited space. Um, uh, although it seems like on a podcast, you can just expand exponentially and just turn it into a part three. In, in reality, when you're putting something into print, you have a finite space. So you're not going to be able to include everything. Second of all, your audience is going to be a, a different audience than, say, a group of church members in Nauvoo in the Grove listening to Joseph preach. So those are the, the two considerations I have. Now, in point of fact, the, the, this history book never actually ends up being, uh, it, it ends up cutting off, uh, you know, beforehand. So it, it doesn't include this Wentworth letter that Joseph Smith writes. And so the church publishes it itself in the Times and Seasons newspaper in Nauvoo. So in March of 1842, Joseph is going to publish this account of the first vision to, to the world, obviously, but uh, most especially to the church in the church's newspaper. Now, he's already written or dictated the account that's going to be in Joseph Smith history. The church history, Joseph Smith's working on that really from 1838 all the way up to this time in 1842. And they've, they've already written, they've already edited, they've already prepared for publication 
Joseph Smith's account of the first vision in that document, in that, that, you know, sometimes will later be called the history of the church, but, but it hasn't been published yet. It's actually not going to be published, uh, you know, for uh, another, another couple issues in the times and seasons. So this is the first place that there is a publication. It is relatively short, his account in the Wentworth letter, because he's trying to include multiple things. He's trying to include, um, the the account of, of of the publication of the Book of Mormon, how he translated it. He, he's trying to include some of the other aspects of their history, but he's going to give what seems to be a pretty familiar account to most Latter-day Saints in this. Again, so your target audience, not members of the church, your space, very limited. What are you going to say? He I- explains that not everyone could be right, you know, that with this, this tumult of religions and that God could not be the author of so much confusion. I determined to investigate the subject more fully, believing that if God had a church, it would not be split up into factions, that if he taught one society worship one way and to administer one set of ordinances, he would not teach another principles that were diametrically opposed. Believing the word of God, I had confidence in the declaration of James. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. You'll, you'll notice that idea that the Bible essentially spurs him to, to ask of God is something that runs as kind of this tether throughout these multiple accounts. That clearly that, that there are some things that are certainly in all of them. And one is that Joseph has questions. What precisely are those questions? They seem to be questions surrounding A, his own sinfulness, and, and B, about salvation. Well, those questions about sinfulness and salvation naturally lead to questions of who's teaching the right thing about sinfulness and salvation. Are the Methodists right when they teach me that salvation is a lifelong process and that I better not be a backslider and that I need to find a way first to get justification and then hopefully get some kind of sanctification? Or the Presbyterians right in saying that as I feel this call towards God, then that means God has already chosen to save me. My salvation's assured. Again, those two things are not, they are not compatible, which is what Joseph is saying expressly here in a way he doesn't say in his journal version, right? He, he, he's reasoned it out almost for the listener. If we think about this, if God is God, then the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Baptists and the Catholics can't all be 100% right. Whereas he says here in the Wentworth letter, he would not teach another principles that were diametrically opposed. I, I think you could say it's a pretty diametrically opposed idea. Either Jesus died to save everyone or Jesus only died to save a very few people. You can say, well, you're just trying to get into semantics. It's not very semantic who the Savior of mankind died for. That is an understanding of the atonement of Jesus Christ that is either one very limited way or one incredibly merciful, all-expansive way. I guess I'm kind of tipping my hand there which one I I, I think is right. Um, But... um, that 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 Joseph is kind of spelling out for his readers, hey, this question that I have is a question you should all have. 
they all live in a world where there's this faction, this this infighting among among religionists, each claiming that they're following the Bible and yet each teaching something totally different about the Bible. I know that's like really hard for us to understand today how you would ever have any kind of infighting amongst groups it, and it, between groups. It's hard to believe. I mean, you know, in their world, you know, two Christians, you know, because they weren't very civilized, they would disagree and argue and hate one another for not believing the same thing. Luckily today, you'd never have two people in a congregation that felt differently about you know a certain political issue and then hate one another for it. Yeah, you, you would never have a U of U and a BYU fan, you know, you know, uh, you know, feeling negative thoughts towards one another. But um, Joseph, after explaining that he has asked this question, is going to give a very brief explanation of what he will expand upon, or he's already expanded upon, in the as yet unpublished Joseph Smith history. I retired to a secret place in a grove and began to call upon the Lord. While fervently engaged in supplication, my mind was taken away from the objects with which I was surrounded. I was enwrapped in a heavenly vision, and I saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness, surrounded with a brilliant light which eclipsed the sun at noonday. So you, ha you, you have this explanation of light again, but he's actually placing that light near the end. I think maybe, maybe I, this is me speculating. I hate to put words inside of Joseph Smith's you know, mouth, but maybe the difficulty that he's clearly facing in trying to describe what the light is. Is it light? Is it fire? Is it light? Is it fire? I think he might decide to backload that by saying, this is a heavenly vision. This isn't a forest fire that I got caught in. I'm not Martin Luther caught in a, in a thunderstorm. I, I, I had a heavenly vision. And in that vision, this is what I saw. And then he's going to turn, you know, pretty quickly from what he saw, you know, that he saw these two glorious personages. He actually, you'll notice, he isn't going to have them speak to him and identify themselves individually, right? He's going to have, I had these two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness, surrounded with light, and they told me. So he's not going to, in this brief public account, try to get into the discussion of, well, this is what God said, and this is what Jesus said. Now, remember, part of what God said to Jesus, uh, sorry, part of what God said to Joseph Smith is actually a very personal, right? That, that, that you know, uh, Joseph, that, you know, calling me by name, this is my beloved son, that there's this personal connection between God uh, and, and Joseph Smith. Maybe Joseph doesn't feel like that is appropriate for this published world. What do you need to know? You need to know that I had a vision and saw these two beings and what else do you need to know? Well, you don't need to know whether or not my sins are forgiven. I, don't, I already have enough of you telling me how sinful I am anyway. You need to know why Mormonism is different than other religions. So what does he then talk about? They told me that all religious denominations were believing in incorrect doctrines and that none of them was acknowledged of God as his church and kingdom. You'll notice that that is a, as soft a way as Joseph can relate to, to this you know, Christian crowd that isn't Mormon, what, what he says that God had, had said to him. In fact, if we go back to the 1832 account, it's a little bit more stark uh, that 
um, that the world lieth in sin at this time, and none doeth good, no, not one. They have turned aside from my gospel. They keep not my commandments. They draw near to me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and mine anger is kindling against the inhabitants of the earth to visit them according to their ungodliness and to bring to pass that which hath been spoken by the mouth of the prophets and apostles. And lo, I come quickly, as it is written in the cloud, clothed in glory of my father and my soul. You know, that, that's the end of, of that conversation. Then Joseph says, my soul was filled with love for many days. Interestingly, Joseph's soul is filled with love for many days right after this conversation of this, you know, destruction is imminent, you know, is coming. Um, Joseph doesn't repeat exactly that when he's ex- giving this general explanation of what he was told. And, and I think this is in some ways Joseph trying to, you know, be, if you, for lack of a better term, a little bit more politically correct in that regard. I can write in my journal account um, exactly what God had to say about the world. But unless I have an opportunity to explain to the world what is meant by things like even the fact that Jesus is coming soon, they're not going to understand it. Remember, we talked about this. They lived in a world where they don't think Jesus is coming soon. They make fun of people who think that Jesus is coming soon and that he's coming in power and glory. They're post-millennialists for the most part, or amillennialists. They think that the world's just going to keep getting better and better and better until it becomes perfect, and then Jesus well, is going to come. And even then, I would argue that, like, if you see some guy on the street corner holding up the sign, you know, the the <laughs> end is near. Yeah. I mean, you know, here we are, like, with that essential belief, but we all kind of look at him as kooky. Yeah. I mean, we we probably learned those of us who served a, a mission know that. While it might be fun to knock on the door and say, let me tell you how you're going to burn in hell, it's, it's probably less effective. It's probably not as effective as we've got a, we've got a message of peace and happiness. Um, does that mean that you are deceiving the person behind the door? Because you don't open up by saying the great and dreadful day of the Lord is near even at the doors. No, it, it means that you you understand that in order to understand these these aspects of religion, you need a lot more information than I can give you in this very brief newspaper you know, cutout. Hopefully you get something from this that causes you to want to learn more about Mormons, but I'm not going to be able to describe to you Doctrine and Covenants section 93 in this little excerpt of, of a letter. So, Joseph, I, I think, is he's 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 placing the language in a way that's certainly true, but also in a way that's certainly more palatable. I've already established that God wouldn't have churches that are all split up into these factions. That's a reality for every person reading this, every non-Mormon reading this. They told me that all religious denominations were believing in correct doctrines. That's actually probably not a hard conclusion for the person listening to come to either. At least all of them can't be right because they're all teaching different things and that none of them was acknowledged of God as his church and kingdom. So, so here he's getting to the main point of it. Why does Mormonism matter? Why did you ever start your church? Because I was told by God that none of the existing churches had essentially all of his truth. Now, that is a soft way of saying that, you know, they draw near unto me with their lips and their hearts are far from me. And they're an abomination in my sight. Yeah, 
Right, right. It's it's a softer way. The creeds were an abomination. Yeah, the, right, right. That that well, that's what he'll say in, in it's his. It's a good distinction. That's yeah, yeah. very helpful. So, I was expressly commanded to go not after them. At the same time, receiving a promise that the fullness of the gospel should at some future time be made known to me. So there's there's another thing you get from this published account. Not only is is Joseph getting this explanation of that his sins are forgiven him. He's also getting the kind of, I mean, spoiler alert from, from God that, that there is going to be this greater work that's going to be done. Again, this makes a lot of sense. If in fact you're, you're publishing a very brief thing to a bunch of people who don't believe whose primary question is what do these weirdo Mormons believe and why do they believe it? They aren't going to be able to go into a, an examination of Latter-day Saint theology versus traditional Trinitarian theology. But you can express, well, why don't you do what other churches do? Because God told me not to follow other churches. It, it becomes a pretty straightforward thing. All the rest is just semantics. Well, why is there a Mormon church at all? It's, which is what they call that at the time, right? Well, because God told me not to go after these other churches. So that that's that published account. That it's it's that earliest published account from Joseph Smith that he intended to be published to in a larger work of history to to non-Mormons. In the in the aftermath of that, on the heels of that, shortly thereafter, just a couple issues of, of the Times and Seasons later, the first publication of what you today call Joseph Smith history is going to be published. Now today it's it's great. It's right there in your scriptures. It's all versified and 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 you can go to it. But originally this was published as the history of Joseph Smith. That's what they called the church history. In fact, you know, I'm probably about to take you down the tangent of 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 when we were talking about townships. That's where we're at here. But to understand that they, they start writing this history and they, they do a bunch of false starts. I mean, John Coral is supposed to write a history and he apostatizes and then eventually, you know, publishes the history on his own and doesn't give it back to the church. John Whitmer, apparently everyone named John is, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm just throwing it out there that there's a lot of apostates in the early church named John. And, um, uh, John Whitmer is supposed to write a history. He does write an extensive history and then apostatizes and refuses to give the history back to the church. So they've actually, by eight, by 1839, they have had multiple attempts trying to write a comprehensive history of the church that has ended in total failure. After the, the Missouri, you know, horrors, they, they, they again take this up in earnest to write a history of, of and they call it, um, the history of Joseph Smith. Though that history of Joseph Smith is going to eventually be published serially, which sounds like it tastes better than it is, but I mean every single uh, issue of the Times and Seasons, they're going to publish a small part of it each week, each issue of the Times and Seasons every other, every other week, twice a month, building up to this. Well, eventually that history, um, they aren't going to finish publishing all of it, uh, before they, you know, again, spoiler alert, are going to be driven out of the United States. 
So they'll continue publishing that history, that manuscript that they created with Joseph during it, during his life every week in, in the Deseret news, that history, that, that, that collection of all of these historical accounts will eventually be published by, by, by BH Roberts in what you know, as you know, the, the history of the church, that, that six volume set of the, you know, maybe the colored binding you might've you know, seen it of, of, uh, of the history of the church. But it's actually all the same document. The published, the published history of Joseph Smith is also the same thing as the history of the church. They're the same thing. Well, what is this Joseph Smith history then that, that's in my scriptures? Well, what's that? Well, in 1851, uh, Franklin Richards is the head of the mission in, in England, and he pulls together in a, in a track that he is going to publish multiple teachings of Joseph Smith, as well as multiple translations of Joseph Smith and multiple revelations of Joseph Smith. This he's going to call the Pearl of Great Price. The Pearl of Great Price didn't start out being canonized revelation. This is, this is not like the Book of Mormon that, you know, is, is, this is scripture from the time it's falling out on the, on the page uh, as Oliver Cowdery is writing it. In fact, the Pearl of Great Price is designed to be this almost aid, this, this increase of faith to all people who are already believers. And what does, what does Richards do? He has many of these back issues of the times and seasons, and he goes through and he edits this published history of Joseph Smith and creates the narrative that you have today in, in your Pearl of Great Price. In fact, it's so, I mean, Franklin Richards is the editor I want working on the next book I publish. He, he does it so well. He edits it so seamlessly that you actually can't tell that he's making edits to the text. Occasionally, I'll have a student say, well, how come Joseph Smith history doesn't talk about Martin Harris losing the 116 pages? Well, because Joseph Smith history used to talk about that. It does talk about that in the published history, but that's part of what was excised out by Franklin Richards when he put it together as this brief history of Joseph Smith in The Pearl of Great Price. But they're actually all, if you're still following me at all, right, they're actually all the same document. So they're, the history of the church, the history of Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith history are actually all the same source. They come from this manuscript, this deliberate attempt to tell the world and the church what has happened. And in fact, Joseph tells you that from the very beginning, right? It's owing to the many false reports. Why are we writing this? Well, because we're coming out of Missouri, where Missouri is trying to convince the world that we're all just a bunch of rebellious murderers trying to destroy the, the, the state, except who are the people that were being murdered? Oh, yeah, it was us. I mean, so they, 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 the plan is to get our truth out there. And in fact, I think this is a really good analogy of what, of what the church is doing today, in fact, where the church is making increasing efforts at helping members understand their history. Well, why? I mean, why can't we go back to the times of, you know, the 1960s and 70s where, you know, whatever's in the standard works, that's all I really need. Maybe I'll 
pick up a marvelous work and a wonder and Jesus the Christ and I'm good. You know, why, why do I need to know that there's multiple accounts of the first vision? Well, because in our world today, that, that knowledge vacuum never stays a vacuum for very long. Into the place of not talking about your own history, someone else steps and they are more than willing to tell you all about your own history. The saints have experienced this. They have gone through horrific persecutions in Missouri and in Ohio. And what is out in the public? Attacks upon them by their enemies. So you can see the reason why they want to get this history out there. Don't, 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 you know, with your Eber Howe book, talk about how, you know, Joseph Smith made up everything that, that you know, that this aspect of the Book of Mormon or the gold plates. Let me tell you what actually happened. So that's the impetus of the creation of the history of the church. And it's a portion of that history that is excerpted out and then is, is put into the program. Right. So the program price has other things in it. Like uh, it, it originally had revelations that Joseph had received, but had never actually been published. Like the, we talked about with the, the revelation on, and I believe it also had lectures on faith. Does that sound so, right? Well, the lectures on faith were in the doctrine and covenants. Ah. They were in the 1835 doctrine and covenants, but eventually taken out. But yes, there there's uh, there, the pro great price has multiple revelations that Joseph Smith received, but weren't published. It had things like the book of Moses, which had been, had been received and, and published sporadically, but not in a place where you could get it all together. So that's the, the cool part about the program price. It is really popular. In fact, when they are setting the cornerstone of the Salt Lake temple, one of the books they put into the Salt Lake temple, the cornerstone is a copy of the program Great price. So that it kind of gives you an idea of what Brigham Young thinks about it. I mean, it's it's all just a collection of teachings of Joseph Smith. So, I mean, it's not a hard thing to, to get behind if you're a Latter-day Saint. Like, oh, he also taught this? Great. And, but it's not until 1880 that it's actually going to be canonized as a, a book of Scripture in the church. So up until that time, it's just it's really popular collection of Joseph Smith teachings. Um, so if you're still bearing with us, and we can go back to the actual account, the point being, uh, the reason why I spent some time on that is so you could understand the source, but also so you can understand the purpose in writing it. The purpose of writing this history is we've tried to write a bunch of histories and they keep getting apostatized and run off with. We need to explain to people what it is we actually believe and what it is that we said actually happened. It's certainly going to be published first to the saints in the times and seasons, but you can tell the real impetus, the real point of publishing it is to essentially refute the false arguments that are being made owing to the many false reports in circulation. It, it, the book tells you at, at its beginning why it's being created in the first place. So it's, it's to both a Latter-day Saint and a, a non-Latter-day Saint public, and it's being prepared specifically to answer questions that exist and, and slanderous accusations that have been made. So what might, even before we read it, I know you've all read it, but even before we read it, you might expect, given the fact that this is a comprehensive attempt to talk about the history, that's being written both to members and non-members, and its intent is to be published, 
you might expect that it is that it has more detail in it and that it's longer than any other account of the first vision. That's what you'd expect. Because this isn't just your scribe jotting it down in your journal when you're talking to Joshua the Jewish minister slash reincarnated Matthias. This isn't just you writing with Frederick G. Williams an unfinished history. This isn't just you parceling out what little bit you hope is made into this larger history of America in the Wentworth letter. This is you taking the time to tell others what you think is most important and respond to the slanders that you you deal with. So I, I don't probably need to read uh, a lot of this, but sometimes people ask the question, well, why do we? I mean, if Joseph has so many different accounts of the first vision, why do we focus on the one that, that's in Joseph Smith history? I think there's a, a couple of good answers for that. I mean, the practical answer to it is, it, you know, the reason why it's the one you know is it's the one in your scripture. So that, that makes sense. But secondarily, it would actually be really weird if the account of the first vision that we focused on and used would be one that was less comprehensive less detailed, and that Joseph Smith never intended to publish. It, it's actually the will of Joseph Smith that this is the account that everyone has. So it's, 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 it, you know, it's good to know about the other accounts. We certainly get things from every account. But it's not that weird that this is the one the church focuses on because it's the one that Joseph Smith focused on. So why, why would we say, well, yeah, but we don't want to focus on the one he focused on. What about this one that we found in his journal later? Uh, it, it, it makes sense. And, and, of course, once it gets canonized, it becomes a part of, of our history that is, is, to many Latter-day Saints, the most beautiful aspect of the account of, of the first vision, the way that Joseph so taught it. So if we're, if we're talking about, like, for example, uh, Superman, like there's the 1978 Christopher Reeve Superman. That's the real one. The right real there. one. No, that's the how other, I look at it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The other ones were like, okay, there were attempts at, like, trying to tell the story. But really, if we want to talk about it, it's the Christopher Reeve's Superman is the one, right? I, I think so. I mean, there's a difference between, especially when you're talking about someone's claim to miraculous experiences, there's a very big difference between Paul saying, this is what I saw on the road to Damascus and someone else saying, I'm pretty sure this is what Paul was saying. It's a, it's a miraculous experience that is a personal one. And so the reality is no one, no one but Joseph and our heavenly father and Jesus Christ and apparently a bunch of angels, no one else, no mortal was there with Joseph in that experience. That means any attempt to denigrate Joseph's experience on the basis of the accounts that exist is a pretty faulty logic. The only person who can give us any details, the only mortal who can give us any details of the first vision is Joseph Smith. So when someone from the outside says, well, I think he probably should have said X, that person doesn't even have any, any ability to appropriate what actually happened. I don't either. As a historian, I don't, I don't have the ability to say, well, I'm pretty sure this is probably what actually happened to Joseph. What can I do? All I can do is say, this is what Joseph said. And in this case, this is what Joseph said 
publicly to the world. This is what Joseph thought members and non-members should know about his experience. But it's to, to, to nitpick it and say, well, how come he says this and this one, but not this and this one, is to deny the reality of the fact that he is the only person who experienced this miracle. Only he can give you details on it. And anyone who thinks that they can give details beyond it, well, they're not doing history anymore. They are doing, you know, they're, they're, they're doing antagonism or they might be doing some kind of theology, but they're not doing history. Historically speaking, only Joseph Smith can give us details on his prophetic experience in the grove. But what does Joseph Smith want people to know about this experience in this public format? Again, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because it's something that's it's so familiar to you and you can read it yourself. But he is is really kind of combining many aspects of these various accounts that have come before. First of all, that he really has a question is is something, again, that thread that's running throughout. But you also have him, you know, talking about this power that's trying to stop him. Now, the Wentworth letter didn't say anything about that and probably didn't say anything about that because there wasn't space and the attempt to introduce this evil enemy in without without space might just lead people to say, oh, yeah, I'm sure you felt uh, Satan right before you had your experience, Joseph, that kind of response or old Joe Smith, which is probably what they actually said. Um, and so uh, the. You have some of that, right? Joseph says, I retired to the place where I previously designed to go, looked around me, found myself alone. So he, he offers that up to explain that he's not out there with someone else. Instead of giving the details of the hearing the footsteps and jumping up, um, he has this, I had scarcely done so when immediately seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me. Such, had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. So here he's actually giving even more detail of this satanic influence that, that was preventing him from speaking, exerting all my powers to call upon God, to deliver me up out of this enemy, which seized upon me at that very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, not an imaginary ruin, but the power of some actual being from the unseen world who held such marvelous powers. I had never before felt in any being, just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light over my head. That It's interesting that another aspect to these various accounts that, that we need to take seriously is that all of us reflect on our experiences, our religious experiences, with knowledge that we gain over the course of time. Anyone listening to this podcast, still listening, so mom, uh, if you can remember at all what it what you thought about your patriarchal blessing when you first got it now some of you you know maybe maybe i have you know a 16 year old listener who's like oh yeah it was like last week i totally remember exactly what i was thinking but but for many of you you, you treasure your your blessing and you read it often and you think about it often but can you remember exactly what you thought about the words the patriarch spoke as he said them? I won't pretend to speak for you, but I'm going to guess 
that even in the tiny interim between when he spoke them and when you received the typed up or printed up copy of it, when you went back and read it again, you noticed things that you didn't actually notice the first time that when, when, it, when it was first being spoken. So even at, even at the very earliest stage of having received this, this blessing, it's a, it's a spiritual experience for you. You have an idea of what you think it means or what it says, but even in your first rereading of it, there are things that change from what you initially thought. That's just in the first couple of days. Now imagine having, you know, looking back on that blessing from decades removed from it rather than just days. What has happened in the interim? I mean, all of you have had this experience where at one point in your life, you might even have shared it with someone like, yeah, my, my, my blessing says this. I'm pretty sure that means I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be X or I'm going to do Y. Right. And then life happened and suddenly you realized, I can't believe that I ever thought that my blessing meant this was going to happen. It obviously meant this was going to happen. It wasn't that you were lying to your younger self. It wasn't that you were like, oh yeah, I'm going to totally fool myself about what this means because this isn't what it means at all. It's that your understanding of that event changes over the course of time. You might have phraseology in your in your blessing that says something to the effect of, you know, you'll you will have the ability to bear your testimony to many people. Well, you probably think, you know, when you're when you're a teenager and you get that, oh, that, you know, that means I'm going to go on a mission. And that's what you think it means. And the whole time you're on your mission, you go back and you reread it and you think that this is me fulfilling my blessing. And then after your mission, you end up, you know, getting uh, uh, called later in life to be uh, a mission president or or a, a, a general relief society president or something like that. Suddenly, when you look back on the words that say, oh, you'll be able to preach to many people, it's a lot more than just the people that I ran into on my mission. Now, the words didn't actually change. The experience didn't actually change. So what changed? Your interpretation of that experience based upon your new knowledge. So look, there's no way to put the genie back in the bottle for Joseph Smith. There isn't any way to do it for any of us. If the only type of ice cream you had ever tasted in your entire life was vanilla ice cream, and then I gave you some chocolate ice cream, you wouldn't be able to just pretend that you'd never tasted vanilla ice cream as you made the comparison in your mind. You might say it to, you know, to make me feel better, you know, when I, I'm trying to prove to you how great the chocolate ice cream is, primarily because it doesn't have any mint in it, uh, because mint and chocolate don't belong together. That's, that, that's, that's a terrible sin. But um, the, the, the reality is you, you can't actually unexperience the experiences you've had, however much we want to. So, look, by 1842, when this is published, but really it's 1839 when it's being written, Joseph Smith has had multiple religious experiences. Multiple religious experiences. He knows now more about God than he ever knew before. 
he couldn't possibly know some of those things when he was a 14-year-old in the Grove. But now, as he's describing them, it, it makes much more sense to him. And a great example of this is his... Joseph is going to come to a, a very stark realization of the reality of Satan. And I know I, I've talked about this before, but one of the, the increasingly unique aspects of Latter-day Saint theology in this Christian world is that Satan is a real being. It, it is, it is a, a, a fading belief among Christians. Now, again, you're thinking, no, all the Christians I know, they believe in Satan. I, I, I'm not saying most Christians don't believe in Satan. What I'm saying is over the course of the past century, a, a rapidly increasing number of Christians do not believe that Satan is a real being. They think that it's a, it's a way of talking about sin, that it's a, you know, a collection of different ideas about, you know, fallen sinfulness, but not a real being. Well, Latter-day Saints are, have a pretty certain, uh, uh, theological belief that Satan's a real being. Why? because of all these revelations that Joseph Smith had in which it's Lucifer is a big part of, of, of the, the, the plan of salvation in the sense of him rejecting it. It's part of the story. Well, Joseph knows that. And so you can see him trying to assert that here, right? That this is not an imaginary ruin. This is an actual power of an actual being from an unseen world. This isn't just, oh, I kind of lost my confidence as I began to pray. No, something was trying to destroy me. And it's, it, it's that insight that I think Joseph has gained over the course of time. We know that earlier he, he still thought there was opposition. He still thought it was hard to go, to go through with it. But by this time period, he, he's able to reflect on it in a little bit more, uh, a little bit more depth. Again, you know, it, I, you all know it. No sooner appeared that I found myself delivered from the enemy, which held me bound, which when the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name and said, pointing to the other, this is my beloved son. Hear him. He, he, he gives you a little bit of space there. You know, no sooner, therefore, did I gain, get possession of myself, so I was able to speak, that I asked the persons who stood above me which of all sex was right. Now, there, there's certainly some time period in between there that Joseph is, 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 is letting some things pass. I was answered, uh, uh, well, and which I should join. I was answered that I should join none of them, for they were all wrong. And that personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And so here you get what is certainly there in the 1832 account, and, and not so much in the 1835 account, and not at all really in, in the Wentworth account, you get this, this, this much more expansive explanation. Why are all of them wrong? Why shouldn't I join any of them? Well, the Wentworth letter, well, they're all teaching incorrect doctrines. What exactly are the incorrect doctrines that they're teaching? Well, their creeds are an abomination in his sight. Right? So you get the, it's, 
It's one thing to say, well, yeah, they're teaching incorrect doctrines. That's a fairly passive way of saying I don't agree with everything they say. It's quite another when the Lord says, the things that they believe are an abomination. Their creeds are an abomination in his sight. They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So that, uh, you know, that, that phraseology, obviously, it resonates from that. And so while we might say, well, how come Joseph in this account didn't talk about there also being angels present in the grove? The, the frank answer is, I, I don't know. But I do know that Joseph did talk about angels being a part of that vision in his 1835 journal. You don't have to recount every aspect of an event from the past exactly with all of its details in order for you to be telling the truth about that experience, especially when we are talking about this miraculous experience. The, the writers of the Gospels do not give the same account of various aspects of Jesus' life. From his birth to his ministry to when he cleansed the temple to when the crucifixion took place, there are discrepancies. And one might, if they wanted to apply that type of, 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 of cynical logic, say, ah, clearly all the gospel writers are just lying about this. They're just making it up because if they were telling the truth, they'd all have the exact same story. But the reality is, generally, a historian is going to say that the writer of the Gospel of Matthew and the writer of the Gospel of Mark and the writer of the Gospel of Luke all believe that they are telling an accurate portrayal of Jesus' life. That, that they, they aren't attempting to deceive anybody. They really believe, and they want you to believe and they believe that they're presenting it the, the right way, even though it's from different perspectives and even though there are sometimes contradictions between, between those, uh, those different ways of talking about it. So it, it doesn't lessen Joseph Smith's experience that some of the details are in one account but not in another. And anyone who's lived life knows that you have told stories that are still true. Sometimes they're 10 minutes long. Sometimes they're five minutes long. Sometimes they're 10 seconds long and they're all the exact same experience. Also, as you look back on that experience, if it was a powerful experience, as time passes, your appreciation of that experience changes. Your understanding of that experience changes. Your feeling about why it happened changes because now you have perspective. Joseph doesn't have any perspective in, in 1820. How could he possibly have perspective? He is a poor, downtrodden, you know, young teenage kid. He doesn't know anything about what is about to happen, so he can't yet have perspective on it. But as time goes by, as his prophetic role and further other experiences come, they also are going to affect what he has to say. Now, the other thing that I don't know this because I'm not a prophet, so I don't know. Again, the, the disclaimer is I haven't seen Jesus, so I don't know what happens when you see him. But we're not talking about Joseph Smith in the sense that he only has a single vision. Joseph Smith is going to have manifestations of the divine multiple times throughout his life. 
I don't know how well you are able to separate those powerful manifestations. Even if I think about the very spiritual experiences I've had in my life, if you were to ask me to separate them out or to categorize them, you know, was this experience more spiritual than this one was? I, I would struggle trying to, well, I mean, I felt kind of like this and this one, but I felt like this and in, in this one. What's the reality? To me, the reality is those experiences, both of these two I'm thinking of, were real. There really was a presence of God in that experience. It really was a miracle. And, and I don't know how much those things run together. Is it possible that the reason why Joseph Smith recognizes more about the way that the, the, the father and the son look is that since that time, he's seen the father and the son multiple times. How could that not affect the way that you talk about it, having had that multiple experience? So I, I think one of uh, the ways we see this, we actually talked about this uh, when we were talking about the translation of the Book of Mormon. Moroni comes and quotes all kinds of things to Joseph Smith. Uh, here's a bunch of Old Testament scriptures. And if Joseph is anything like anyone else who's ever studied religion, it's hard to remember all the Old Testament scriptures, right? That, that's, those are the hard ones. And yet, what does Joseph Smith remember from that experience? He remembers pretty consistently as he's retelling it, that the, the, the prophecy of, of Malachi, right? That I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Why does Joseph remember that in particular when he's writing this history? I think it's because Elijah had appeared to Joseph Smith. And so what a jogging that would be to whatever his memory was of that experience with the angel that in fact, Elijah did come just like Moroni said he would. And, and that, you know, Elijah came and restored those keys and, and, and was a, a crucial part of, of the restoration. But of course, when Joseph talks about what Moroni said to me, having had the experience of having had Elijah actually give him keys, one of the things that Joseph is going to remember is, this is one of the things that Moroni said in 1823. He told me Elijah was going to come, and Elijah came. And, and, and you can see that he's now seeing some of the end from the beginning. So I think that affects, it, that affects the, the, the way that he talks about it too. In any case, this is what Joseph Smith wanted both members and non-members to know about his experience. What is clear in all of them? He wants you to know that he had an experience. Now, briefly, let's talk about some of the other accounts that uh, exist about the first vision. I was I was being very you know you know very professorial, uh, for lack of a better term, when I said that the Wentworth letter was the earliest published Joseph Smith account. Right, I I couldn't if I qualified that anymore. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, 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 the why am I saying that? Well, because he had written the eighteen thirty eight thirty nine history that becomes Joseph Smith history. He'd written that before, but it hadn't been published. Well, there had been another account that was published. This is Orson Pratt's account, um, where he he publishes a tract in which he gives all kinds of. Uh, history of the church and part of what he gives this is in 1840 part of what he gives is an explanation of 
Joseph Smith's first vision. Now, where is he getting this information? The assumption is it's very similar to the information that's in the history of the church that's been written but not published. That there's some kind of, he's probably at least talked to them about it, or that the story's, you know, obviously coming very similar. Either way, Joseph Smith is the only source you can go to ultimately for this experience of the first vision. Um, and so it has some aspects that are very, that are very similar. Um, you know, this is the great question to be decided in his mind. This is Pratt writing about Joseph in the third person is if any one of these denominations be the church of Christ, which one is it until he could become satisfied in relation to this question? He could not rest contented to trust in the decisions of fallible man and build his hopes upon the same without any certainty and knowledge of his own would not satisfy the anxious desires that pervaded his breast. To decide without any positive or definite evidence on which he could rely upon a subject involving the future welfare of his soul was revolting to his feelings. You, you can probably already tell that Orson Pratt's a, he's a better writer than Joseph Smith is. I mean, he's, he's, he's much more polished in that regard. Uh, the only alternative that seemed to be left him was to read the scriptures and endeavor to follow their directions. He accordingly commenced perusing the sacred pages of the Bible with sincerity. Believing the things he had read, his mind soon caught hold of the passage. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. It giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. From this promise he learned that it was his, the privilege of all men to ask God for wisdom, with a sure and certain expectation of receiving liberally without being upbraided for doing so. This was cheering information to him, tidings that gave him joy. You get this, this insight from Pratt that the very fact that he knew he could ask God apparently gave Joseph some kind of peace uh, of his mind. For the experience itself, um, he, something similar, right? He, he retired to a secret place in a grove a short distance from his father's house and knelt down and began to call upon the Lord. At first, he was severely tempted by the powers of darkness, which endeavored to overcome him. But he continued to seek for deliverance until darkness gave way from his mind and he was enabled to pray in fervency of spirit and faith. And while thus pouring out his soul, anxiously desiring an answer from God, he at length saw a very bright and glorious light in the heavens above, which at first seemed to be at a considerable distance. He continued praying while the light appeared to be gradually descending towards him. And as it drew near, it increased in brightness and magnitude so that by the time it reached the tops of the trees, the whole wilderness for some distance around was illuminated in the most glorious and brilliant manner. He expected to have seen the leaves and the boughs of the trees consumed. Remember, this is this back to the same old issue. Is this fire or is this light? But perceiving that it did not produce that effect, he was encouraged with the hopes of being able to endure its presence. It continued descending slowly till it rested upon the earth and he was enveloped in the midst of it. When it first came upon him, it produced a peculiar sensation throughout his whole system. And immediately his mind was caught away from the natural objects with which he was surrounded. He was enwrapped in a heavenly vision and saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness. He was informed that his sins were forgiven. Notice this is fairly similar to the way the Wentworth letter describes it. Again, Pratt's publication is a, it's a publication to the world. So it's, it's, it's audiences designed to be, for many non-members explaining what Mormons believe. 
He was also informed upon certain subjects which he had for some time previously agitated his mind that all religious denominations were believing incorrect doctrines. So you, you can see the, the similarities there. But the reality is Pratt, as the writer, is, is choosing what of Joseph Smith's story that he's heard or read to include to the reader. You now have that, you have a separate filter, right? Because now it's not simply what did Joseph say and why did he say it? Now it is what did Joseph Smith say and why did he say it? And why did Pratt decide that those parts were the parts that were most important that he included? It it doesn't mean that what Pratt's saying is in any way disingenuous if it's different, but it does mean that there's a filter that you have to recognize, Another uh, account of the first vision is recorded in Levi Richards' journal. Um, he is is talking about a, a meeting that he has with, with Joseph Smith, and it's a very brief account of this. President Joseph Smith, this is from his journal. Again, so there's a filter. What's the filter? Joseph Smith is teaching something, and Levi Richards is later going and writing in his journal. Now, that's pretty contemporary. He's writing it down at the time. But it's obviously not going to be word for word any more than you're writing down word for word what I'm saying today. Or if you are, what a terrible life choice you have made, right? So so it, it's not natural to think that he would be writing every single word down. Well, what are you going to write down then? Like all of us who hear a sermon or a talk that we love, if we go write about it in our journal, we don't attempt to replicate every word that was spoken. We say, you know, Elder Oaks gave an amazing talk today that talked about blank. And and, and we might provide some more details, but we, we don't even attempt to capture every word that was spoken. And it's easy for us. We could actually go get every word and copy it in if we wanted to. Instead, we reflect the parts that were important to us. This is from Levi Richards' journal, 11th of June, 1843. This is near the end of Joseph Smith's life. President Joseph Smith bore testimony to the same, saying that when he was a youth, he began to think about these things, but could not find out which of all sects were right. He went into the grove and inquired of the Lord which of all sects were right. He received for an answer that none of them were right that they were all wrong and that the everlasting covenant was broken. He said he understood the fullness of the gospel from the beginning to the end, and he could teach it and also the order of the priesthood and all its ramifications. Earth and hell had opposed him and tried to destroy him, but they had not done it and they never would. So you, you can see whatever Joseph told Levi Richards, that's what Levi Richards' takeaway was that he recorded in his journal, that Joseph had this experience that he was told that there wasn't any other church that had all the truth on the earth and that Joseph had been persecuted for his teaching what he taught. You could see why that would resonate in, in, in Nauvoo to a member who's uh, like Levi Richards, who's obviously gone through people castigating him and questioning his testimony, telling him how silly it is that he's gone to join up with the Mormons and things like that, that Joseph Smith has a similar experience. He has a powerful conversion experience. He learns doctrine of God and people oppose him and despise him for it. That, that's not a surprising thing that Levi Richards records in there. Did Joseph Smith explain what words were spoken to him? Maybe. I don't know. All I know is what Levi Richards wrote in his journal. Speaking of filters, let's talk about 
news reporters. Um, what one of the more uh, broad accounts of the of the the first vision is one that is is probably also the hardest to fully trust. This is an interview that Joseph Smith gives with the reporter and newspaper editor David Nye White, also in 1843. Now, because it's an interview and it's being reported by White, but we don't—I mean, we don't have a—we don't have a transcript of the interview. We don't have—we don't have a recording that we can go listen to make sure that they put it up the—you know—the right words when they when they created the transcript. What do we have? We have a pretty antagonistic newspaper reporter who's not a fan of Mormons and doesn't believe in them reporting what he says Joseph Smith said. Now, I know in the world today, people implicitly trust whatever is said in the media. If someone says it, then that must absolutely be the case. But in their world, it was entirely possible that for especially political reasons, and that's one of the problems that David White has with Joseph Smith, someone might not report exactly what was said in order to make a bigger point for your larger issue. So that's something you have to you 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 have to take you have to take into consideration. White says that God that Joseph said God ha- does reveal Himself to me. I know it. He revealed himself to me first when I was about 14 years old. Again, about 14 years old. This is always this kind of about. A mere boy. I will tell you about it. There was a reformation among the different religious denominations in the neighborhood where I lived, and I became serious and was desirous to know what church to join. While thinking of this matter, I opened the Testament promiscuously upon the words in James, ask of the Lord who giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not. I determined I'd ask him. I immediately went to the woods where my father had a clearing and went to the stump where I had stuck my axe when I had quit work, and I kneeled down and prayed. Now, that's very interesting. That's detail that you actually don't get from any other account. So if you ever see a video or a representation of the first vision, and it's Joseph, you know, not deep into the trees, but just past the tree line where his axe is, I mean, where do you cut trees down, right? If you're if you're living on a farm and half of it's covered in trees, Whatever the purpose of you cutting the tree down, you're going to do it as close to the clearing as possible. If you're cutting it down for firewood, you don't want to haul it any farther than you have to. If you're cutting it down so that you can increase the acreage of your farm, you're cutting it down on the edge of of, of where the other trees are because you're trying to increase the farm. I guess maybe you're chopping it down because you need that particular size tree for something that you're building or whatever. But but that's this this information. He goes to where his axe was already stuck in a tree. Again, filtered through David White. Oh Lord, what church shall I join? Is the prayer. Directly I saw a light and then a glorious person in the light and then another person. And the first person had said to the second, Behold my beloved son, hear him. That, uh, again, sounds very similar and is, of course, after that publication of that official church history. I then addressed the second person saying, Oh Lord, what church shall I join? He replied, Don't join any of them. They are all corrupt. Then the vision vanished, and then I came to myself. I was sprawling on my back. It was some time before my strength returned. When I went home and told the people that I had a revelation and that all the churches were corrupt, they persecuted me, and they have persecuted me ever since. 
They thought to put me down, but they haven't succeeded and they can't do it. So you, you get this. It, I, I don't know how much of this is exactly the way Joseph said it to David White, but hopefully um, um, it's reflecting what it was he was teaching, but that's, that's where that account comes from. There's also another journal account, again, not from Joseph, but from someone who hears Joseph talk about it. This is uh, the, the Jewish convert to the church, Alexander Niebar. And Alexander Niebar is, is going to, uh, uh, again, relate in his journal this experience of, of hearing. And it's pretty choppy, okay? This is not, a, you know, this is not a, a very easy-to-read uh, account because he's just putting in highlights, obviously. Called it Brother J.S.'s, you know, Joseph Smith. Met Mr. Bonnie. Brother Joseph told us, he's, he's German, you know, so it's told, not told. Um, he told us the first call he'd had to a revival meeting, his mother and brother and sister got religion. He wanted to get religion too. Wanted to feel and shout like the rest, but he could feel nothing. Opened his Bible. The first passage that struck him was that any, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not. Went into the wood to pray, knelt himself down. His tongue was closed, cleaved to his roof. Could not utter a word. Felt easier after a while. Saw a fire towards heaven came near and saw and nearer and saw a personage in the fire. Light complexion, blue eyes, a piece of white cloth drawn over his shoulder. His right arm bare. After a while, another person came to the side of the first. Mr. Smith then asked, must I join the Methodist church? No, was the response. No, they are all, they are not my people. They all have gone astray. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. But this is my beloved son. Hearken ye him. The fire drew nigher, rested on the tree, enveloped him, comfort, endeavored to rise, but felt uncomfortable, felt uncommon feeble. Got into the house, told the Methodist priest, said this was not an age for God to reveal himself in vision. Revelation had ceased with the New Testament. So that's, it's a pretty lengthy account. It's a cool one. And again, it's in Nebar's journal. And, and here, once again, the, the fact that Joseph was pursuing this Methodist sect it seems to be front and center. The description of blue eyes is particularly profound. I, I don't know what it is about that, but that is just uh, that he's he's giving this description of these attributes. In in the others, he's giving attributes right that they resemble each other exactly. Again, I I don't know exactly what Joseph Smith said in the presence of Alexander Nebar because it's not Joseph writing this in his journal; it's Alexander writing this in his journal. And, and what struck him, what spoke out to him might be different than what it would be for others. But it, it, you do see this, um, you do see this affinity, or at least the question surrounding Methodism. Someone might say, well, how come in this account, it says he asked specifically if he should join the Methodists, but in the other account, it just says, which church should I join? Well, given the fact that Joe Smith says, that over the process of time, my mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect, and I felt some desire to be united with them. That suggests that if he was going to ask which church should he join, the Methodist church would be the first one he would ask. If he felt some desire to be united with them, then that's probably the most that's, that's top of mind. Again, I don't know with these other accounts exactly what Joseph said and what was recorded, and, and really, historians are placed in a, in a tough spot with that because 
you, you all will hear things that someone supposedly said, and then as you begin to try to track them down, it's actually hard to figure out where they're, where they're said. So for instance, I, I just had this experience this week. Um, someone asked me, how do we know what Brigham Young's last words were? People say that, you know, that he was so close to Joseph Smith that as he was dying, he said the words, Joseph, 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 right? And, and you'll see that in, in publications. You'll see that in video representations. And, and someone asked the question of where does that come from? You know, I, I see where it's, it's in an Enzyme article here, but it doesn't have any citation to it. And I read, you know, you know, you know, George Q. Cannon is, is with Brigham Young almost all the time that he's going through his illness and death. And he doesn't say that Brigham Young said that. So is this just made up? How, how do I know? Well, what's our source on that? Well, the obituary that's published anonymously about Brigham Young a couple days, you know, a few days after his death states that that was the last intelligible words he'd said that he actually said other things you couldn't understand. I don't know who's the witness for that. I don't know who was writing that down. There are obviously lots of people around him in his sickness, but they, that's where that, that source comes from. Similarly, we're left with some historical ambiguity of what was actually spoken as opposed to what was recorded and when and in what order that happened. You know, someone might, I guess, be really upset that it seems that, that in this account that um, this uh, Joseph doesn't ask his question, um, uh, well, that he, he isn't told about... Um, the beloved son until even after he's told which church to join and those things are out of order. So I might say, yeah, yeah, the order's off. This can't be right. Or possibly Nebar as he's recording in his journal, can't keep the order straight of the miraculous vision that he just had described to him. There are a lot of possible causes, but again, back to the main point, none of them that would cause you to say, well, this can't possibly be true because this account doesn't say exactly the same thing this one does. Now, I know we've gone a long time, but I, I want to close up here by saying the important aspect of the accounts of the first vision is that we have this record that Joseph Smith had an experience with God. Whether that experience included angels or not, whether that experience included having God speak to him first or Jesus speak to him first or the, the, the light being fire or whether those are all essentially semantic concerns as, as people are wrestling with how the events of that vision actually took place. The real question is, did Joseph Smith have a vision? Once the answer to that question is yes, the details of it are, are simply just gravy. They, they, they might make things taste better. They give us a good insight. But the essential aspect is, did Joseph Smith see God? Did Joseph Smith have an experience with the divine? If the answer is yes, and Joseph Smith is certainly saying that he had an experience with the divine and many other experiences, then 
then that means whether all the details in every account and every journal entry of anyone who ever recorded what he said about the first vision, whether they line up or not, is, is, is not the point. The Gospels in the New Testament don't agree on every point, don't tell every story. And that's not the point. What is the point? Jesus is the Christ. Whether you hear every uh, gospel tell the story of the Good Samaritan or not, has no bearing on whether or not Jesus taught the story and whether or not that story teaches a true principle. Similarly, you don't get all the details of the resurrection and the crucifixion from every one of the accounts. There are parts here and there are parts there. But what is the part that matters? You have a Savior who suffered for your sins and died for you. That wherever you are at, whatever hole you might find yourself in spiritually, because of Jesus Christ, you have the ability to repent and become something different. I love Joseph Smith and I love the account of the first vision because it's the reason why I believe in Jesus Christ. I am not of the temperament that I would believe if I was forced to rely solely on the accounts of, of people from 2,000 years ago. My historical and analytical mind wouldn't, wouldn't allow me, at least I don't think so. Why do I believe? Because the Holy Spirit of God has told me that Joseph Smith did see God. And if Joseph Smith saw Jesus, then that means Jesus really does live. And if Jesus really does live, then all of us can be forgiven of our sins and all of us will live again. That's, that's the message of Christianity. It's the beautiful, comforting thought in this world filled with horror. So I urge you as you study the accounts of the first vision, find the parts that are interesting. Notice how, oh, he says this one here, but you know, Nebar says this here. But never lose sight of what's actually going on. Joseph Smith is declaring unequivocally that the Lord Jesus Christ lives and spoke to him. And he can speak to all of us as well. So we'll talk more about some other uh, uh, church history topics in future podcasts. But thank you so much for your time. And I hope everyone out there has a good week and does well. And we'll see you with the next one we drop. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.